If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to legendary sports broadcaster Vern Lundquist about his lifelong love of classical music. We will also break down his amazing movie roles in stuff like The Last Boy Scout, Happy Gilmore, and as a special treat. Adam will lie and tell Vern that he played drums, even though he didn't. Just wanted to be part of the conversation. <laughs> I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. We've got some other stuff coming up, slamming the hammer, giving you some distractions. But joining me in the studio in Chicago, a fresh-faced sports media strategist and cultural day walker who is long time for the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many global sports brands, it's Adam Millard. Adam, how are you? I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Also joining us in our Brooklyn Bureau, beaming via satellite, our Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, what's new? I am also fine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And back in Chicago, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for our producer extraordinaire, Mr. Joe Reed. Joe, how's the West Wing these days? It's uh, it's as great as it's ever been, man. I'm excited to get back. I'm excited to get back. <laughs> Only like thirty or forty hours per week uh, for the next, uh, you know, seven weeks, Joe. Whatever, yeah. dude. Then it's on to Patty Duke. <laughs> hey. <laughs> then it's on to Gunsmoke. Just twenty years, twenty years of that, you know, catching up. Anyway, on. Uh, on you guys the don't show. watch the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? <laughs> yeah. You, 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 Buy those infomercial tapes. <laughs> Joe goes it. home, puts on his robe, those long socks. It's <laughs> awesome. Uh, on this show, if you're new, we don't just invite people on uh, behind the scenes. We go public with our invites because these people in the sports world have expressed an interest in something that's not sports. And therefore, we feel like they're obligated to come on the show and talk about it with us. So we call this slamming the hammer. Adam, who are you going to slam the hammer to? Again, Swinging for the fences here. Uh, <laughs> I would like to have Tiger Woods on to talk about his Navy SEAL training. He's had, I th- think he has said allegedly that if he wasn't a golfer, he would have liked to have been a SEAL, certainly athletic enough and strong enough and disciplined enough to do it. But there's also some controversy that he may have hurt himself while doing some of this training. Um, and then the Navy has also, on occasion, denied that he's done the training with them at all. So uh, a little bit of controversy, but more and more like to focus on his, you know, how he became interested in the SEALs uh, and what the training consisted of. Because uh, to be a world-class athlete is one thing, but to be a Navy SEAL, a whole different kind of training. Yeah. I'm going to jump in. Normally I go last. I'm going to jump in with my hammer because it's related. It's Kent Bazemore, guard or forward player for the Atlanta Hawks. Guard slash forward, I think it's Yeah, fair. yeah, swing, 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 swing man is what the, the term du jour is these days. Um, he's huge into Navy SEAL culture and into a series of, of like fiction books that follow 
espionage, like spies, that kind of stuff. In fact, I, I the name escapes me right now, but if you go to his Twitter handle, his his name is not <laughs> Kit Bazemore. Um, it's the name of a fictional character from one of these series, like kind of a Jason Bourne type. And then I saw on Instagram he was following, he was he was talking about it a lot. So um, actually reached out to his to his people, uh, defined the very premise of this segment. <laughs> and wanted to see if he can come on. He's a little busy. He's got some camps and stuff. But I am hoping he can come on and talk about these uh, this book series. Very cool. So, all right. Cool. Gareth in New York. Who do you want to slam Yeah, my hammer? hammer this week is a little more enthusiastic than last week's Jay Bruce. I didn't have a hammer as we were taping hammer. Uh, this week's I want to hammer one of the legends that helped build the NFL, and that would be Rosie Greer. Uh, he was part of the Fearsome Foursome. Uh, and he just led an interest has led an interesting life. Uh, he was on the love boat. He was there when Bobby Kennedy was shot. He was, he sang it's all right to cry. When I was growing up watching it on Sesame street, he wrote a book called Rosie Greer's Needlepoint for men. Uh, he's an ordained Christian minister. Rosie Greer has led a fascinating life and I want to hear all his stories. Hey Gareth. Um, it's all right to cry. It's all crying right to cry. gets the set out. <laughs> <laughs> I think we sang that. What was that camp we went to in sixth grade? Uh, camp Glen Helen. Camp in, Glen Helen. Kids were definitely. Uh, that's in Dave Chappelle's hometown of Yellow Springs, Ohio. Yes, very good. Uh, well, that's a good one. We're gonna we're gonna break it down. Probably burst into tears. Um, uh, good invite. By the way, it was, it was Scott Scott Harvath. Is the name of the character that Kent Basemore has changed his Twitter name to, which is what actually sparked my interest in this because I was like, "Am I looking at the NBA player? Or am I looking at this dude named Scott who is like <laughs> kind of totally appropriated his his persona?" Um, all right, Joe, close this out. Who are you going to slam the hammer to? So I want to talk to any athlete: Johnny Damon, Terrell Owens, Scott Hamilton, and many others. Wait, wait, let's guess. What do Johnny Damon, <laughs> Johnny Damon Scott Terrell Hamilton, Owens, Terrell and Scott Owens. Hamilton? I know, I know there are more, but I, I can't think of them. Something? They've been workout. a they've, they've had a shared experience. They've had Not a shared time, experience. It's a shared experience in broadcasting. Oh, it is. They've seen a UFO. Celebrity Apprentice. I, I would. Like we, did we slam this already? Yeah. No, I talked about it. Oh, I would love to talk to him uh, about the experience on the show, what it's like to deal with the future president of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> Don't blame me. I voted for Jill Stein. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, anyway. that's who I, uh, yeah. I want to talk to. I want to I want to I I remember watching it when I was uh, younger, younger. Yeah. And um I'd love to. I'd love to hear about a little behind the scenes stuff. What's it like to be on The Apprentice? Because then Donald Trump was sort of this crazy caricature that I watched on television. Hey, hey, and hey, now, hey, Joe, Joe, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of my Trump? <laughs> oh man, I, the I don't Tim know what King to say. Trump impression was really he good. To get workshopped a little closer. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Not so good. It was like the it was like the Jimmy Butler Vanessa Carlton impression. Whoa! Wait, 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 wait. We gave Jimmy Butler credit for his Jimmy Vanessa Carlton impression. Listen, you were like, as long as you, as long as you are all in, all about it, I give you, I give you props. You said Kevin Durant was said Kevin Durant was amazing and thunderstruck. 
Well, and you so, said Limp Biscuit was better than Lincoln Park. All right, let's not relive all that. <laughs> guys, guys, it's not like that's on tape, okay? <laughs> in, the, in the grand tradition of Trump, uh, you, to put it another way, no, I didn't say any of those things. <laughs> uh, you may have record and proof of it, but nope, didn't happen. <laughs> anyway, if you've got someone you want to talk to, email us, justnotsports at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at justnotsports. Right now, we are going to an amazingly in-depth, super fun, candid interview with one of the broadcasting legends of the sports world, Vern Lundquist, uh, longtime colleague of Garrett's. I've been a longtime fan of Vern's. Uh, we had a lot of fun. We, uh, we talk not just classical music, but uh, get into his movie career, get into overall pop culture. Adam lies to him several times. One time. <laughs> One time. And uh, anyway... Stick around. You do not want to miss it. Joining the show right now is Merton Laverne Lundquist Jr., better known to anyone who has ever watched sports simply as Verd. Vern Lundquist has enjoyed a storied career that's seen him call the Super Bowl, the Masters, the SEC Game of the Week, the NCAA Tournament, the Olympics, and much, much more. During that time, he's amassed more famous calls than any broadcaster in modern history. This year, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Sports Emmys, and this fall, he'll be embarking on his final season as the voice of the SEC on CBS. But today, we're not going to talk about any of that. We're going to talk about Vern's love of classical music and maybe get some of his trademark stories along the way. So, Vern, thank you for joining the show. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing just great, guys. I I just turned down the uh, Colorado Public Radio Station, which uh, emphasizes classical music here in uh, in Denver. <laughs> well, I was going to say we we've got a lot of uh, we've got a lot of um, younger listeners who follow our show. Many of them probably aren't as familiar, um, you know, with, with classic music. Some, some obviously are, but where, where do you think would be the, the place for someone who's a novice to start? Like, where do you point people and say, Hey, a good entree into this world, which is so expansive, uh, start here. If you, if you are a subscriber to uh, Sirius XM, uh, and Nancy and I are, uh, I would just get your feet wet, go to channel 76, which is called Symphony Hall. Uh, and, and they do a wide variety of different music. Uh, I think on a local basis around the country, if you have a small civic orchestra or if you're in a, if you're in a larger city, a symphony orchestra, uh, try it out. And uh, the world of classical music encompasses a wide range of, of tastes. Uh, most of the emphasis, I still think, is on guys who lived two, three, four hundred years ago. And uh, there's a move among many people who are trying to upgrade to more modern music. And they say, uh, well, we're tired of playing uh, the music of old dead white guys. Uh, to which, and I'm on the board <laughs> of our, our uh, music festival in Simbo Springs, we, we always respond, yes, I understand. But it's the music of the old dead white guys that put rear ends in seats. So we hope that you'll continue to play it. Right. The classic push-pull of art versus commerce playing out every day across America. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, it's, and it's a constant battle. 
because it, it it has become, in my view, and I'm I'm in my well, I'm more than in my mid seventies now. I just turned seventy six uh, two weeks ago. Uh, but but uh, you know the 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 the, uh, the age of the typical classic music concert attendee is going uh, is going up. It's not going mm-hmm. down, and we're trying des- not almost desperately to uh, encompass uh, the millennials and even younger than that, and uh, to make the music palatable to them. And just as a side note, and, and our music festival in Steamboat Gareth knows this, where Nancy and I lived for thirty plus years, uh, we do uh, classical on Wednesday and Saturday. And then on Friday nights, we do what we call a different tempo. And it can be uh, country, western, rock and roll, uh, jazz. And, and really, that is what, over the years, has paid the bills for us, because we sell that out uh, almost every Friday night, no matter, right. uh, no matter who it is. Mm-hmm. But we're really we're having a heck of a summer this year. Uh, we, we, we don't sell out on Saturday night. But we come, we've come close three or four times, so it's it's encouraging. And for Nancy and me, it's uh, it's something that we've been involved in. We moved to Steamboat in '84, and mm-hmm. uh, she said to me, "It's a ranching town that happens to have a world class ski resort three miles from downtown." Well, there wasn't much in the way of vivid culture back when we moved here, and mm-hmm. uh, when this little festival started in 1988, we grabbed hold of that and. And uh, we've been a vivid part, a, a real in, uh, significant part of our lives ever since. So is that where your love of classical began, or was it something that you brought with you from childhood, earlier in adulthood? Or is it really this festival in Steamboat in 88 where this all took off for you? Well, no, it started much earlier than that. Uh, I My dad was a Lutheran minister. My mom was uh, what they would, uh, you know, a, a the wife of a preacher man. And uh, I, I failed at two things when I was in elementary school, music and sports. And uh, <laughs> So they only became your life. <laughs> I, re- I realized it right away. Uh, I mean, I played in the, in the Everett School Systems All-Star Band when I was in the seventh grade. I played trumpet. Me too, Vern. And uh, we... Oh, did you really? Played trumpet all through high school yep. and some into college. I played drums. All right. Did you really? Yeah. Next? Yeah, that's great. Well, the, the uh, I, I wasn't very good, and I was advised to take up sports, and I was even worse at that. So, uh, but, but I had a love of music even back then. I sang, we moved to Texas when I was 12, and I sang in the high school choir. Uh, at Austin High School in Austin. And then when I was at Texas Lutheran uh, for four years, 58 to 62, I sang in our college, our mixed choir, college choir. And we toured every every winter for three weeks, mostly throughout the Midwest. So, and I say this without hesitation, the most life-enriching experience I had in my four years at my alma mater, and it's a school... Uh, to which I'm immensely loyal. I love, I love our little universe. Uh, but the most enriching uh, experience I had was not an English class or a history class 
or a speech class. It was my four years in in the college choir. But then interesting thing happened. I I, I graduated. Long, 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 long story about how I got involved in radio television. But the essence of it all is that my interest in classical kind of went dormant. And uh, for years and years, Nancy and I met in 1980. We both had been married before. And on our first date, she told me that she had been a voice major at the University of Texas, uh, considered a career in classical music voice, but turned it down, married her high school sweetheart, and put into a dental school. And uh, But we discovered that we both, and, and through her, uh, it, it kind of awakened my latent interest in this form of music. And obviously it's uh, an extremely critical part of our lives now. I can't believe we're doing this. Talking about this, it's so swank. I think it's a hoot. <laughs> well, yeah, we think it is too. Uh, Vern, so I grew up in Denver as well. went to school in Pueblo. Uh, I've seen quite a few shows at Red Rocks. Have you ever seen any good classical performances there? We have not, believe it or not. We've lived here more than 30 years. Now, we go to the Colorado Symphony quite often. Uh, I've never, ever seen any kind of a concert at Red Rocks, but holy cow, what a setting. Well, I I think that means the next time I'm out there, we <laughs> we'll just might have up. to hit it up. <laughs> okay, that that sounds like a deal. All right, that sounds like it. You know, this is just since we're on this topic, and I say this uh, without any fear of contradiction. Uh, so much of my life is lived away from uh, sports stadiums, football stadiums, basketball arenas. And because it is, uh, uh, Nancy and I have more close friends in the world of classical music than we do in, in all of the sports efforts that I've done over the years. And it's just a, I'm, all, I'm, all I'm saying is that it's a, I mean, we never, ever go to New York City that we don't go to the New York Philharmonic. And uh, I've been known to sneak away if I'm up there on my own. And uh, the American Ballet Theater is performing, or the New York City Ballet. Uh, I'm in. I'm in a seat by myself. Uh, it's just a really significant part of my life. I love that, Vern. I, uh, as someone who's worked with you in sports, I have a good friend. One of my best friends owns a gallery, and I love art. And so when we get together, which is pretty much any time I have some time off here in New York, we'll go look at art, and he just asks me for sports world gossip. And I just ask him for art world gossip. And that's, I'm sure you've got a lot of that within the classical music world. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, I would never, if, if someone approaches me and they've got a warmth about them or a friendliness and they're not going to put a finger in my chest and they want to know something about the SEC or March Madness or golf. Uh, of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer them, and I have an interest in in uh, letting them know what I feel or what I know. But uh, it's much more rewarding to me when we talk about you know which is the greatest of Beethoven symphonies. Well, Vern, that actually steers into my next question because it was the use of Beethoven at the end of the King's speech that kind of made me sit up a couple of years ago and say. Holy crap, I should be listening to more of this stuff. It's amazing. Um, so with that in mind, could you give us some of your all-time 
favorite classical music songs so we can make a Spotify playlist to get our listeners into this? Yeah, I've, 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 Nancy and I have a list of favorite composers, and I would not put Beethoven in my top five. I know that the people who love and know classical music much more than I do would say, you got to be kidding me. <clears throat> but I'm, uh, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, fellas. Uh, my, my short list of favorite composers would be Dvorak, uh, Tchaikovsky, uh, Rachmaninoff, uh, Beethoven would be there next, probably. Uh, I, I'm not a, my wife is a big fan of Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not so much. I mean, I like, yeah, of course. He, he was a genius and really the, I would say, uh, one of the pivotal points for classical music. But uh, we've been lucky enough. I'll tell you a, a quick story, and this fits into my love of classical music. Uh, I, I, I get asked now that at the end of my career is nearing, uh, you know, if you had one, one event left, what would you like to do? And I think I surprised people because they would say, oh, my gosh, you know, the NCAA football championship or the Super Bowl mm-hmm. anchor of the 18th of Augusta. No, my my one if I had one event to do again, not do over, but do again, I would like to sit with Scott Hamilton on my side and do one more Winter Olympics. Oh, uh, well. My role, my my role model was growing up in this business was Jim McKay, one of one of my role models, and I still think he's the greatest storyteller we ever had. But this leads itself into uh, a discussion of why I found figure skating fascinating. It was the combination of the athleticism and the choreography that that and how they reacted to the, to the music, no matter what the choice was. So anyway. I was doing a skating event in January. Oh, this was probably 1996, so 20 years ago. And uh, we were in St. Petersburg. And Tamara Moskvina, to this day, is one of the most extraordinary figures with whom I've had a chance to interact in my life. She was a, an Olympic pair skater for Russia in the 68 games. And she <laughs> later became one of the, one of the legendary legendary pairs coaches. She's had two different pairs win gold medals. We covered them both. And along the way, we became friends. And she, uh, she's my age. Uh, she and her husband live in St. Petersburg still, and they both coach. So she invited uh, uh, two or three of us who were involved in the program out to her home. And uh, mm-hmm. this was 96, so the wall had fallen. Uh and then we get, we it was a winter night, soft snow falling down, and she took us in her car, and she had a Fiat. And mm-hmm. I said, Tamara, how how do you arrange a Fiat in in the Soviet system? And she, well, what was left of it? And she yeah. said, it's good to be it's good to be coach. <laughs> <laughs> so we go to her home was, and it was modest by any standard. But it had a warmth about it, and, and we were. She lived on the second floor, and there was a, a huge window that looked across a park, and on the other other side of the park was a Russian Orthodox church. 
and they're very easy to spot with the dome. And yeah, uh, so I was standing at the window, just kind of lost in it all. And Tamara walked up to me and put her arm around me. She said, "It's beautiful." No, hmm. and I said, "It is very, very beautiful." And she said, "It's very important church." Tchaikovsky worship there. Wow. Hmm. Well, that gave me a little sense about what I was looking at. Vern, uh, one of my favorite things about music is drinking along with music. If you are, <laughs> if you're at home pouring yourself a, a drink and listening to to some music, what is your drink of choice? Well, uh, we don't have. The, the, the scotch is never too far from our arms. <laughs> uh, That's the answer I was looking for. <laughs> you know, for us, uh, it, it's five o'clock somewhere. Uh, no, we, we and and we're not we're not connoisseurs of wine at all. But we enjoy uh, both Nancy and I enjoy Pinot Grigio. Uh, you 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 caused me to venture off and tell you one of my favorite stories. Yes. Uh, about a golfer. This is absolutely true. But I was filling in for Jim Nance at the AT&T Tigers tournament about seven, eight years ago. And I was working with Nick Faldo and they had, they had a segment that they ran every Sunday. I, it doesn't run anymore, but it was called in their own words. And they would go after the practice, the driving range. And, uh, two hours before the guy teed off and they grabbed a relative unknown, and they give him a microphone, and uh, one of the assistant producers would ask questions and say, please speak in complete sentences and tell us a little bit, bit about yourself. So they did, and here's what here's what came up on the air. Howdy, my name is Jeff Overton. Uh, I'm from Evansville, Indiana. I grew up wanting to be a Hoosier basketball player, but I was slow and I couldn't shoot. I could, however, hit a golf ball. So I played varsity golf for Indiana University for three years, tried my luck on the PGA Tour, and I've been out here for a while. I love it when I make a cut because then I know I'm going to get a paycheck. Ain't nothing better than on Saturday night when you've made the cut, going out with a couple of friends, having a nice New York strip, a loaded mashed potato, and a couple of glasses of peanut no ear. <laughs> <laughs> so he said it. I looked at Rick and I said, you suppose he's serious? And Rick said, I'm afraid he is. So we, we've, I, told, I tell that story all the time. I think glad. Jeff probably knows it's Pinot Noir now. Well, I'm glad I asked about your drinking habit. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Vern, so I believe it was Rachmaninoff who said that music is enough for a lifetime, but a lifetime is not enough for music, which I think is one of the most beautiful quotes on music ever given. Um, now, you didn't, he, that didn't, uh, Gareth, that didn't come off the top of your head. Oh, absolutely it did. I've committed that one to memory. Well, I'm going to now. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> that's awesome. I worked with a gentleman. It was actually uh, when I was much younger and we were working as line cooks in a kitchen and he was a cellist and he was auditioning for the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra and 
he he just hadn't gotten there yet. And so he was working as a cook until he could make his money through music. And he told me that one day working on the line. And then the other thing he said that's always stuck with me, and this was probably about 15 years ago, we were talking about jazz. And to your point earlier about the old dead white guys, he said from a classical standpoint, look, he's like, we know how to play Mozart at this point. We know how to handle Beethoven. I don't think we figured out what to do with John Coltrane yet. And the challenge, and he said the challenge for classical music moving forward from a canonical perspective is to how to expand the canon to introduce these other new ideas. So what, I mean, you mentioned earlier doing country nights and things like that. I know the white guys put butts in the seat, but what sort of things do you envision the future of classical music, including? Well, I think it's got to move forward. And that's, uh, I, I, I'm not a big atonal person. Uh, 20th century guys. I, I, I hear it's going to be by Philip Gage. Uh, Cage? John Cage. John Cage. I'm Philip Glass and John Cage. I know I have a responsibility to listen to it and appreciate it. Uh, I'm 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 right in with the early music of Stravinsky, but when you get to the later stuff, uh, I'm not so sure. But I I under, now I'm I'm speaking like an old goat, and I think that we have to introduce uh, modern classical music to this younger generation, two two generations removed from me, uh, that that we need to grow the grow the base, as they say. Uh, Rory McIlroy said, uh, "I'm not. I'm not playing golf to grow the game. Grow the game. Well, you kind of are. Well, uh, and and it's like Barkley and, and Charles and I have become really good friends. But when he said, "I ain't no role model," I kind of understood what he was saying, but I disagreed with it then. I still do. You may not want to be, but you are. So back to your question, I, I mean, I want people." I want there to be a, an emotional response to the sounds that are coming into your ears. Hmm. And I find it challenging for me to listen to John Cage and Philip Glass. Uh, just, and I don't mean to pick on them, but uh, uh, every time that I hear it, it's going to be 12 tone, I think, oh boy, it's going to be a long 30 minutes. Uh so I want, and everybody. they will all be thirty minutes. By the way, they're not, they're very oh, yeah, short. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, but but I we got to get them into the tent first of all, and 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 let them and say just listen to this. This is, I mean, you know, Dvorak lived up until uh, right around the, the beginning of the twentieth century. Mm. Um, so there there are people of prominence, composers of prominence, whose music I think is just wonderful. Uh, but I'm, I, I've, had a, I've had a music director say to me, one of our former music directors at our festival, we've really had some, we've had four over 30 years, and they've all been terrific contributors. But they said, listen, the musicians themselves get tired of of playing uh, uh, Mendelssohn's octet, you know, right. they want to play something more challenging. 
And by the way, I got to put Mendelssohn in my list. If I uh, it's it's a retroactive edition, but I'm allowed that. Uh, and then he said, "We got to, We want to attract the best musicians we can to our mm-hmm. festival." And so I need to play some stuff that's challenging them musically. Uh, but my concern is a lot of it is challenging to the listener as well. Vern, I wonder, um, well, first of all, I think I'm in that generation that you're talking about. I am, uh, I'm 26. I'm the youngest of the group here. And, um, I wonder if you could talk about. Oh, I envy you. I know. Oh, the the guys, the guys give me uh, yeah, remind me of this on a daily basis whenever no, we're taping. If you talk to him for five minutes, you wouldn't envy him anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Vern, I wonder if you could. I'd love to get your thoughts on something. I know Gareth's passionate about too. Uh, Hamilton. I know it's not exactly wow. classical, but it's or at all. <laughs> um, hey, hey, hey! Hold on. Let me get there. But it's music. But it's but you're talking about. Um, you know, Brad started off with where can people start or how do you engage with sort of a younger audience? And I think Hamilton did that for not only Broadway, but like historical um, sort of exploration and younger people. Do you think there's something like this in classical music or what are your thoughts on just musicals in general? Can you do you find appreciation I, 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 there? I don't, oh, gosh, I don't know, but I hope so. Listen, we were lucky enough uh, when Nancy and I were back in New York in May. Uh, I pulled almost every lever and string that I had. And this is a classic case of it's good to know people. And I knew someone, and uh, I said, is there any, my brother and his wife were back this for the Emmy Awards. And I said, is there any chance at all that we could find four tickets for Hamilton? This was like two months in advance. So it would have been in March. Mm-hmm. And I got a, an email back within a week, and it was ding, 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 ding. You got them. And I <laughs> I cannot believe we got to go. And and I will share you this and make, we'll share this with you. And I, I can almost guarantee I can sense the envy coming through my phone. We were on the fourth row. Oh, oh man. The row. And Will Farrell and his wife sat right behind us. And I thought, well, this is pretty good. Uh, and you know what? It's the best thing we've ever seen on Broadway, ever. Uh, it was It was just, I understand why, why Lin-Manuel Miranda was given the genius grant. Because he is. Uh, mm-hmm. And we were concerned because we're a little younger than, than uh, the age of uh, most of the theater goers who were there that night. I mean, we're a little older. Uh, and I am not a, a hip hop and a rap fan, and and but I understood every word. And if I didn't understand every word, they conveyed the meaning of the song so well that I had no issue understanding what story they were telling. Yeah, and I, I swear to God, I think it's the best thing we have ever seen. Uh, and and I would love to have seen it again, with the original cast that we were lucky enough to see. But I think it's a bulletproof uh, Broadway musical in that I'm sure this fellow who replaced uh, Miranda as Hamilton, he's got to be excellent. I'm sure whoever replaced Leslie Odom as uh, as uh, Aaron Burr, and he deservedly, in our view, won the Tony for Best uh, out, uh, Most Outstanding Actor in the Music. 
I agree, Vern. I agree. Have you seen that? I uh, so Vern, I did see Hamilton on Broadway uh, with the the all the original cast. I did not sit on Will Ferrell's lap, unlike <laughs> you. But uh, uh, but uh, I agree with you. It was it was the best show I've ever seen, uh, and I've seen a lot. And I was in a lot of musical theater growing up. Um, I think it will live for a long, long time. Uh, I was really impressed to hear you just say that, and I think it speaks to the. Uh, bulletproof manner of storytelling, as you put it, uh, that you could understand everything that was going on. My parents are going in October. We got them uh, tickets for Christmas. And I told them, you might want to listen to the soundtrack going in just so you start to understand how to listen to rap music. But the fact that that could be conveyed on one listen is is the genius of the show. Yeah, hey, Vern, I want to jump in. Oh, sorry, Vern. I want to jump in and just just declare uh, formally here that that's a huge endorsement for Hamilton since Garrett said, you know, he's done a lot of theater growing up, you know, like playing Orphan Number 2 in our Oxford, Ohio production of Oliver. Like, I have to make fun of him a little bit for that. Come on, Garrett. <laughs> okay, that, Vern, I was I was just the guy on sports radio who says, you know, I played a little bit in high school, so I know what Tom Brady is going through as a quarterback right now. Well, I did. Yeah, don't don't misunderstand. I appreciate good acting because I was in Happy Gilmore. Don't oh, oh yeah, let's go there. Yeah, you're yes. opening a Pandora's box. We have to ask you about about the movie role specifically. <laughs> Happy Gilmore is so iconic. Last Boy Scout, um, that opening scene that you were you were a part of. Do you have any good stories from or anecdotes from those movies that that you know guys like us who um, who they were such a big part of our um, our pop cultural experience uh, would love to hear? Well, I've actually, uh, in my lengthy list of credits, and I've been stunned that I've never heard my name called on Oscar nomination night. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, uh, I actually had about a two-minute role in The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, starring <laughs> Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton. Uh, and we shot that on a soundstage where they filmed the original Phantom of the Opera at Universal in 1982. I mean, that was my introduction to the fine craft of, of uh, movie making. Uh, I will tell you something. I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, I was recruited. I, I don't know how I wound up. But Dick Butkus and I were in the studio, in the booth as commentators, and Lynn Swan was the sideline reporter. And this was for the last Boy Scout. Scout. Now we never. My made. favorite action movie ever made. Well, you know, it was a buddy movie, right? When, uh, when those, that was all the rage in the early nineties, and somehow they paired Butkus and me, and we had Lynn on the sidelines, and they took over the L.A. Memorial Coliseum, and this all had to do with uh, with a team owner who was into the mob and. Uh, the opening scene of it is about as violent as you can get. Uh, this guy, and they're playing it in a rain, rain-drenched stadium that ostensibly was Cleveland. Well, in truth, it was the L.A. Coliseum. We shot, we started, we were required to be on location at midnight, and it was directed by the late Tony Scott. And so I actually got direction. Here's how I want you to play this scene with Dick and yada, yada from Tony Scott. Well, they had 
huge cranes beyond the end zone and then uh, to the north end beyond the 50-yard line. And from these two cranes, they had suspended rectangular, uh, maybe, well, yeah, they would have been rectangular, uh, drain pipes and through which they said, cue the rain, and somebody was, he flipped a switch, and it rained on a 50-yard area from the 50 on into the end zone, and it ended at the sideline. And wow. so Lynn and, Lynn and Dick and I were sitting over at the side, uh, and we watched this for an hour and a half. Here, and it supposedly, uh, it was a, a full house in the stadium. You know what they did? They went out and they offered folks off the street 50 bucks and a meal. <laughs> if they would come inside and sit spaced out from like the 45 to the end zone. And then in between them, they would put cardboard cutouts of people sitting in the stands. <laughs> I mean, I thought, really, this is phony. Uh, and, and when they panned, and then, of course, the, the action was on, on the, uh, and all these guys who were the football players had played junior high, uh, high school, college, junior college. The guy who recruited all of the football players was A.C. Collins. No kidding. O.J.'s buddy. So he was out there, you know, coaching them up. And Lynn and Lynn and Dick and I were sitting in our director's chairs, pardon me. And we, we watched them film the opening scene in which this guy goes loose. And he's in debt to the mafia. And as he's about to score, this is really not uh, PG-13. He pulls a pistol out of his waistband, shoots a defensive back, turns to his left, shoots a linebacker, goes into the end zone, shoots one more guy, and then commits suicide. Whoa. And that's how the movie mercifully <clears throat> begins. Did, <laughs> did AC drive so the team bus as well? <laughs> now, now, I've got to share one more with you. Wait, the movie came, Nancy and I saw it when it came, like a week and a half after it came out, within the next year. And we saw it in Orlando. Uh, we were there for a skating show. And a year went by. And now my father was a Lutheran minister. He was, he was, he could get with it, but my mom was pretty conservative. She called me and she said, son, yes, mom, your father and I just took another couple to see a movie. You didn't tell us you were in this movie called The Last Boy Scout. <laughs> Well, the reason I didn't tell him is because every other word, Gareth, you remember, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I said, mother, I'm embarrassed that you went. How long did you stay? And she said, we stayed through the whole thing. And I said, <laughs> why would you do that? She said, well, you're my son. And I figured oh. if you were in the opening scene, you had to come back at the end of it. <laughs> and of course we never did. <laughs> Vern, did okay that opening scene is iconic i'm wondering whether did they have you record dialogue or or i guess like a broadcast over the the murder on field that they cut out later because it goes silent and you just hear oh, the a natural point. audio or d did you just do the setup and that was always supposed to be what it was uh yeah we did we did now they call it a looping session we did not do that for the last boy scout 
Uh, I can't remember that it was in '91. Yeah. So 25 years ago, uh, I only remember that Butkus and Lynn and I shot our scenes beginning at about 2 a.m. and we wrapped it up at about 5 a.m. and then they fed all the guys in the stands and sent us home with a per diem. Uh, and and uh, I don't recall a looping session then. I think they had us extemporaneously issue a few lines. Now, for Happy Gilmore, uh, I did have to go back to Los Angeles, and, and they had edited some scenes, so I had to, I had to do a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of voiceover for that one. Vern, when you saw these scripts, because both these movies are, are, you know, I mean, Last Boy Scout is obviously more intense, but Happy Gilmore's, you know, one of the reasons it was so beloved is because it's kind of immature, goofy humor. Did you ever get oh, yeah. Did you ever get pushback yeah. from the networks, or and at that time was it just more anything goes if you're not doing it on the company's dollar? No, I was worried about Happy Gilmore, and and uh, not that we all live in fear of Augusta, but we're aware of their presence. And uh, you know, simultaneous to me doing uh, Happy Gilmore, and this was during this was in '96. And I had, uh, you might remember this, when we lost the NFL, I went to Turner for three years and did their NBA game on Thursday and their NFL game on Sunday. But I was full-time for Turner, and I was still doing 20 skating shows a year for CBS. So, But when I saw the script, and we did all the scenes I was in in one day, and uh, and I was concerned that it was such a spoof of the game of golf that the folks who who were in charge of the bastards might not view it as lightly as I did. But I never, ever, ever heard a word from anybody at CBS when I went back or, or Turner or uh, the folks who run golf tournament. Never a word. Yeah, Vern, and, I mean, they, they kicked uh, Gary McCord out of the Masters for, you know, making a crack about how fast the greens were. <laughs> you're, you're in a movie where... You know, Adam Sandler's beating up Bob Barker on a golf green. Yeah. Oh, that believe me, that crossed my <laughs> mind. Uh, you know, it wasn't the most sophisticated piece of filmdom ever. Uh, and and uh, but I never heard anything. I think people regarded it as a spoof. And uh, and, and ironically, Tin Cup uh, was it was I think it was filmed almost at exactly the same time. And because I was no longer for that three-year period, I wasn't at CBS, but all the guys, Frank Trickinian, Lance Barrow, Jim Nance, Gary McCord, uh, they were all in tin cup with Kevin Cost, And uh, they didn't get any feedback either. So I guess we're like... <laughs> you know, I, I, played, uh, I played the course in Houston where tin cup was filmed when they had it filmed there, and they still had all the, 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 the 18th, green set up there with like the stands and the scoreboard. Yeah. It was the closest thing I've ever experienced that felt like playing, <laughs> playing a big time tournament. Uh, also that, that, <laughs> that's great. That, uh, that famous hole at the end of tin cup is really a par four, not a par five. So a little behind uh, the scenes myself, Vern. <laughs> well, <laughs> wow, Brad, thanks for that. that. And you shot, would you I got shoot one that more day? about happy Gilmore. Oh, please. I uh, could talk to you about happy Gilmore all day. Actually, let's do that. We've got another, you got another hour or so. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh my God. Nancy is summoning me. <laughs> well, we're going to dinner here shortly, but we shot, we shot all, I don't know. I don't get, I don't appear till halfway through the movie, 
but then I'm all over the last half of it. We shot all the on-camera scenes in Vancouver, British Columbia, and they used a golf course for all the up there as well. And uh, I flew up the night before we shot, and they had me on the set. It was an abandoned hospital, and they had taken it over for all the all the interior shots. And in in the backyard of this abandoned hospital, they had set up this kind of looked like a, a golf announced situation. And we sat in that. And then they had extras who moved back and forth behind it. And Adam Sandler was actually there that day. So I got to meet him. But here's here's the inside story of how movies are done. Uh, we get out to the scene, 7.30 call, out to the hospital. And I had to go to makeup, of course. And uh, <laughs> and they gave me a blue suit, a blue coat, and a red tie. And, and Dennis Dugan was the uh, director of the movie. He's done a lot of Sandler stuff. And he is in the movie. He plays the PGA Tour commissioner. So he was the guy that actually directed it all. And right before we started, he looks at this tall, good-looking guy named Jack Jaraputo. And he said, Jack, let's have a little fun. Uh, this like a week before they wrapped up shooting. He said, I want you to go back to wardrobe. I know all the lingo now. Uh, get a coat and tie, get some makeup on, and then you sit next to Vern. And you just react to what he's saying. But you can't say a word because you're not a member of the Screen Actors Guild. <laughs> so the guy, the guy sitting next to me, in all, I think it's almost every scene, was Adam Sandler's roommate at the New York University School of Film. <laughs> and it was just an inside joke. I mean, I've got a I've got a photo of Jack and Adam and the guy who played the caddy, uh, and Dennis Dugan, there were about six or seven of us. And every time I've I've seen it a few times because it's always playing on one of the cable networks. Uh and I smile every time I see one of my scenes because Jack is there, and he's very—he's giving it a very wise nod, full of sagacity, like, "Oh yeah, you—I know what you're saying." Vern, when so, you anyway, so, sorry, interrupt. When you read the script for Happy Gilmore, did you think it was going to be okay, or did it just sound like or seem like gibberish on the page? Well, I could—I I saw only my scenes, and so I didn't know okay. the first half of the movie. Uh, <laughs> Interesting. And, I had no idea. So when I saw it, I was somewhat shocked. We, <laughs> what was that like seeing it? Like, I mean, what was it like? I mean, just, well, just... you know what? I'll tell you what. This is a kick because they really, uh, all of them, all the people with whom I dealt were terrific. And now I'm in a preseason game with Pat Hayden, and he remains one of my dearest friends. And Pat, Pat, and I were doing the Giants, a giant, and somebody, and we were down in the field and. He put his arm, we were walking off toward the north end zone. And he said, by the way, I just got to tell you something. I am so embarrassed for you. I, I took my daughter to see this this silly movie you were in. And he was giving me, uh, you know, uh, every bit of phony indignation he could. He said, are you at all embarrassed about being seen in a movie like that? You should be. And I said, oh, come on, come on, come on. But we get to the end zone. And there were three teenage girls right above that, that wind tunnel at the north end of the old giant stadium. 
And as Pat and I were about to walk into the into the tunnel, one of the girls looked down and she said, Hey Bun, happy Gilmore. <laughs> <laughs> I rest my case. What what was your reaction when you saw yourself and you saw the rest of the movie around your scenes for the first time? Well, that you know, I started to tell that story about how nice they were. They flew Nancy and me from Colorado out to the Universal lot for the world premiere. And they had it one of the United Universal uh, theaters. And Bob Parker was there. I got to meet him. And Sandler was there. And probably 600 people in the in the theater. And uh, uh, we went in and sat down. That's the first time I'd seen the whole thing. And I thought, holy cow, this is... Uh, this is some kind of wild movie. And here was the, I say this, uh, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a total narcissist, but. Oh, it's okay. You're, I, talk, you're talking I, to us. <laughs> yeah. I, well, no, I'm coming down on my toes. I recognize myself. Uh, but I said something. I did. It may have been the, who the hell is happy Gilmore line. And it got a huge roar from the audience. And I thought, God almighty, I didn't think it was that funny. But, that you know, that's a sense of uh, Sally Sally Peel jumped up and said, they like me, you like me, you really like me. Uh, and, and, and it got a nice round of, I mean, people, I think, took it for what it was. And it was an early career Adam Sandler movie. Uh, and it's, I mean, it still gets shown on cable every night. How those royalty checks? It's work. <laughs> yeah, and I get a residual every four months, usually somewhere between thirty and forty bucks. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's pretty good. That's that so, Scotch money right there. We, we <laughs> that. Got it. We even go from doors to Johnny Walker. Yeah. <laughs> well, Vern, you've been so generous with your time. We've we've had such a great time talking classical music, recounting some of these Hollywood stories. Uh, I do want to end on a, on a note. Gareth and I um, talk about this story all the time because I know I know he he brought my opinion on this to you years ago. I used to say to Gareth, he, he told me once he was going to work with you when he first came over to CBS, and I said, you know, Vern has the best call no one remembers. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, in the Duke-Kentucky game, the famous 92 Duke-Kentucky game, um, the shot before the shot, uh, I forget his yep. first name, Woods, Takes the ball up in three point. Yeah, Sean Woods. Your dri- dribble drives into the paint, hurls up a, a an out of nowhere bank, and uh, and Vern, do you remember what you said? Because I, I I can quote it. I'm just I, I'm wondering if you remember those words. Yeah, I do. I do. I said, where did he find the courage to take that shot? Ah, uh, great call. It's uh, right in the moment well, too. You nailed it, man. I love that call. I, I'm I'm blessed that you remember that because of that entire game, that's my favorite. You know, uh, I get asked a lot about it because they took, uh, on the 20th anniversary, so it would have been 2012, uh, they brought Lenny Elmore, Kristen Leitner, and me back to New York, and they filmed us or taped us watching a replay of the game. And uh, it was really it was really something. They did a one-hour show, I think, on CBS Sports Network. But my producer uh, for that game, Craig Silver, uh, is also has been my producer. This will be our 30th year together in some capacity. And we work together every week on the SEC and CBS. And he's told me 
that's his favorite doll, and it is mine because if you and the one that gets played all the time, of course, as it should, is Leitner's yeah. Leitner's uh, jump shot at the end. Right. But I've said it. I don't mean this dismissively or or sarcastically. But all I did then was channel my inner Marv Albert, and as it went in, I just <laughs> screamed, "Yeah!" yeah. <laughs> uh, but I really appreciate that because the Woods thing—that's uh, my favorite moment of that game. One, one more thing about it, uh, and I, I'm I'm, <clears throat> I'm such a huge Shevsky fan. And I think he's one of the, maybe the greatest coach ever. I mean, we all revere John Wooden, uh, but Mike is my God. Uh, and he did the, the classiest thing that night. Haywood Ledford had for 39 years been in the radio voice of Kentucky. And he was revered in the state. And he had announced that whenever Kentucky lost to go out of the tournament, that would be his last Last game. So we had Leslie Visser within six, ten feet of K. Wood for the last four minutes of regulation and all of overtime. And the intent was to go to her and let her pay tribute to K. Wood and Ledford, regardless of whether they win or lost, and, and tell the story. And, of course, the game was so extraordinary, we never got on the air. So now the game's over, and there's the hubbub and the emotion both sides. and. Uh, Mike celebrated with his players, and then he turned around, and before he went on Duke Radio, he made a beeline for Kaywood Ledford, and he went live on the Kentucky Broadcast Network to thank him for what he'd meant to the sport. Wow. wow. Pretty good. It was the best finish since Happy Gilmore upset Shooter McGavin <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> in the tournament. Well, Vern... We can't thank you. Giving us so much time, we really you, 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 we're, we're so glad to have you join the show. We wish you nothing but the best this year for SEC football. We'll be we'll be watching every Saturday. So thank you for coming on and uh, and, and best of luck, Vern. I'll see you at well, Red you Rocks. Guys, okay, you got it. <laughs> uh, you got to do that. Uh, thank you guys. This was really really enjoyable. Not appreciate it. And we are back. You know, when athletes make music, movies, or do cool stuff away from the game, inevitably the trolls attack them and say they are a distraction. Well, my friends, life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So right now, we're going to talk a little bit about the things that are distracting us this week, starting with Adam. What do you, what's your distraction? Uh... Being tall and uh, in my mid my mid thirties, uh, my my mobility and flexibility isn't what it used to be. So I have really been into the mobility workout of the day, or MWOD as it's called. So Kelly, Doctor Kelly Starrett, don't give me that face, Brad. MWOD. <laughs> MWOD. Sounds gross, but WOD, for those of you familiar with CrossFit culture, means workout of the day. And this is the mobility MWOD of the day. So using a variety of things um, like foam rollers, lacrosse balls, um, uh, 
exercise bands, for lack of a better phrase right now. Um, you can gain some mobility mobility back, especially for those of us who are desk-bound a lot of the time. And uh, eat, nothing complicated here, just a quick recommendation. If you haven't checked it out, go to YouTube and check out uh, Mobility Workout of the Day or MWOD, and then you can also do a, a subscription-based service, which is what I do, and every day there's a 20-minute workout, gets you loosened up, makes you more mobile, ability to move through your life, pick up groceries, your daughter, whatever it may be. Nice, nice. Well, I always need uh, technological help to pick up my daughter. It's not technological help. It's learning how to use your body better. Gotcha. Joe, what's your distraction? I honestly don't have one. I feel like uh, I, you know, w- watch the same Netflix shows I usually watch, and I, I'm still into grilling. And um, what's the best thing you've been <laughs> you know? lately, Joe? Um. Oh man, I don't know. A lot of hot dogs, a lot of burgers, a lot of chicken. It's just kind of the kind of the go to. We did some zucchini spears on the grill, which were very good. I don't know if you guys ever do veggies on the grill, but that's a thing you can do. Asparagus all the time. Ooh, asparagus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also made sushi the other night, which was very good. You ever make on homemade? The grill? No, 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 no. Sorry. I just met. I'm, I'm transferring <laughs> oh, just to you making interested. things. I thought we were getting interesting here for a second. We could nope. try it. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah. You guys ever sure. made sushi at home? No. It's hard. Yes. Big in the dorm rooms, you get a rice cooker <sighs> and you can just make sushi Where in the dorm. It? But anyways, back to my point. Maybe I don't we really all have need a, some more distraction. I don't really have distraction right now, so I'm eager to hear um, Brad and Gareth's. We should put out a, you know something we haven't nice done on deflection. our Twitter page? Maybe we have and I haven't seen it, but I do follow us on Twitter. Is a Twitter poll. We haven't done that yet. Uh, and I'd be curious to hear which distraction, maybe we don't do it this week, that our viewers want to learn more about. I will hope it's 100% when I listen to Just Not Sports. I've been busy setting up our <laughs> Beam presence. Yeah, how's that going, man? <laughs> I'm learning the platform. Uh, we all Gareth, are. what's distracting you? Uh, so, as the guys know in the podcast, or, so as everyone on the podcast knows, and we've talked about it, Uh, I love music and I love records. I collect records. I have a lot of records at the house. I used to be a DJ and the night of the Clio Awards, we had about an hour to kill and everyone was kind of sitting around. So I ducked out to run an errand and they can attest that I came back with a record bag from two different stores. So my distraction this week is hanging out at record stores because you learn so much great music just hanging out as they're playing various things that have come in the shop, talking to people behind the counter, having a real interaction with a person, not on a phone or emailing somebody or shazamming. And this summer I have picked up the Kinks album, The Muswell Hillbillies. I found a Jerry Jeff Walker song that I absolutely love called About Her Eyes and learned a lot about Roy Ayers girl group production through the 80s it was it's been it's why i've loved hanging out record stores for years and why my distraction now is going to record stores gareth i was gonna ask you about this because i i believe i saw over the weekend you picked up a few records that oh here it is uh some irie vibes on saturday morning are those recent yeah uh, we uh you know we those aren't weren't all new. The Ken Booth album at the bottom, and uh, I think it, he that w- 
Those weren't all new. The Ken Booth album there was picked up at Academy Records in Brooklyn. They also have Manhattan location. That is a full-on endorsement from the Just Not Sports crew. But the record there, The Ethiopian's Slave Call, uh, is gorgeous. That gets my highest possible recommendation. That is a beautiful, beautiful reggae album for anyone who wants to hear some great, you know... Beautiful reggae music, late 60s era, early 70s from Jamaica. Cool. Love it. Can I ask the group, what is the what is your primary method of discovering new music? Spotify. Brad? Searching athletes to have on the show. <laughs> I like worked out today to uh, Le'Veon Bell and Dion. Nice. Okay, no, that's good. Really? You're dedicated. I'm like a different level just not sports than you guys, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yep. I, it's like I told you, it's like looking at how athletes get involved in pop culture, it's like a 3D painting. You just have That's your you distraction. Need, like, deep, deep focus. You just need to keep at it. What is your primary uh, a source, like listening to it, consuming it? Do you like that you download it all and you listen on your iPad or your iPod yeah. or something? Yeah. Phone. Yep. I Phone? listen pretty much predominantly to podcasts. Oh, okay, okay. Gareth, are you primarily... Do you so bars. Like, if I'm in a bar, I would hear a song and be like, what's this song? And then I might download that song. So I'd be like a... But like a, download it, buy it on iTunes. Right. Got it, or okay. Like, test it out on YouTube, and if I like it, then download it. Gareth, are you... What percentage of your music consumption is at home, after work, on vinyl versus, like, on your phone while you're on the subway? I, I listen to a ton of music on my phone on the subway. Um, I mean, honestly, those two albums I mentioned... Learning the summer, I bought digitally. I don't. I didn't buy the records. Got it. Okay. Uh, most of the stuff I buy on vinyl is stuff that either is harder to come by or just I don't know. It's the stuff I like having around. Yeah. Uh, I don't buy. I don't buy a lot of new releases. I buy a lot of uh, mostly used stuff. Um. And yeah, most of my listening is digital. Spotify is great. I'm with Adam on that. Yeah. I'm not a total luddite purist by any stretch actually so. to be honest with you the way i found a lot of my new music lately is through gareth he's sending me a lot of great oh. recommendations look at that no one said well, thank me. you man none of you guys send me any emails everyone's complains when i email like guys too many emails at work and then i find out you're all communicating all the time and you know what? Uh, don't true. worry brad i'm working pretty hard to take over that mantle from you no one's no <laughs> one's even following me on beep <laughs> All right, my here's my distraction, guys. Um, I'm gonna give you a hint. Obey, consume, reproduce. No, is this a Legends of the Hidden Temple reference? No, this is they, <laughs> Henry Rollins. This is client. This is <laughs> very good guess. Uh, this is They Live, the 1988 movie from John Carpenter, Gareth. You're a big fan of the podcast, The Canon. Yeah, recently featured on The Canon. So, yes. Devin Faraci, Amy Nicholson, we've talked about them before. They debate movies to see which are canon worthy uh, to join the pantheon of great films. They talked about They Live. I was perplexed. This is a movie starring Rowdy Roddy Piper, the uh, deceased wrestler. Uh, and I was like, why are they discussing this? That's okay. You can still hammer him, dude. You can still hammer him. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, he'll come on when uh, who's, your, who's Your Boy? Uh, they even Chuck, <laughs> Chuck Cooper, the rifleman. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I was like, why are they? Why are they even considering this? This is it a joke or whatever? So John Carpenter made this movie in the late '80s. Uh, John Carpenter, who made Halloween, arguably the greatest um, uh, horror movie of all time, and 
it's a it's kind of billed as like an old school kind of cheesy 80s action horror movie where Rowdy Rowdy Piper puts on special sunglasses and can see that there's a race of alien ghouls living with us, controlling us. And then he wants to go stop them. I always thought of this as like just a dumb, cheesy action movie. They were arguing that it's a really intense satire on, um, you know, conventions and society and the corruption of power and the small corruptions that people allow in their lives. Um, as they sort of acquiesce to that power. It's not that they're evil, but they're like, well, I get a slightly nicer house if this party takes over and that party just happens to be oppressing or destroying this other people, but, you know, I'm doing okay. That's, in fact, I watched the movie, I listened to their podcast, I watched the whole movie. That is really what it is. It's a fascinating movie. I would highly recommend watching it. I will say this. Because they cast Roddy, Roddy Piper as the lead, Acting leaves a little to be desired in a few key areas. <laughs> Not much emoting happening. And the action overall, it seems a little bit more like what we would consider today to be like a TV movie in terms of the effects and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's a super interesting social satire with a, like some hidden meaning. So I would recommend everyone download the movie and the canon podcast and then do sort of a compendium of them both. Like either I did the podcast first, then the movie or vice versa. Your call. Definitely. What's the name of it again? It's called They Lift. Also, the other reason I've noticed it is when Trump has been ascending, excuse me, as Trump has ascended up the, the political ladder, people have been appropriating images from the movie, and you see these posters of Trump as a ghoul that say, oh, like, obey or consume. So it all goes back to this huh. kind of cult classic. So Interesting. Anyway, those are our distractions. I'm going to watch week. those this week. That is our show this week. If you don't like it, just remember what Malcolm Jenkins said about bow ties. The beauty is in the imperfection. Thank you to all of our listeners, the beautiful and unique Sparkle Ponies. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at JustNotSports. Email us tips, thoughts, and topics, JustNotSports at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com backslash JustNotSports. Find us on Beam. Find us on Instagram. Find us on, are we on Vine yet, Joe? I don't know. We still haven't figured out Snapchat yet. Make the make the Vine, make the Snapchat. It's all coming. Uh, also, unrelated. We hired the wrong millennial. Uh, unrelated, <laughs> unrelated, we are looking for <laughs> social media interns who are willing to work for free and get a lot of emails about our opinions. Um, anyway, uh, we're going to end with some shout-outs. Gareth, why don't you shout-out our guest today? Yeah, big shout-out to Vern Lundquist. Uh I've loved working with him over the years. Want to shout him out for sure. I'm so glad he could come on and he had so much fun. Uh, and and I also have to shout out Adam Castaldo. Adam was actually one of the editors on the Vern Lundquist documentary that came out a couple of years ago. And he and I were supposed to be editing tonight, but mostly he's been editing and I've been recording a podcast. So shout out to Adam. Nice. All right. I don't have any other shout outs. Adam. By you, uh, let's get right to it. Uh, the usual suspects, my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mac, and my other cousin Ron. Love those guys. Thanks for all you do for the show. And with that, in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty, booty rappers, rappers. stay booty, stay booty, stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty.